0: When
1: I decided to join the guerrilla, that was a very transcendental decision that marked a before and after in my life. But after 24 years in insurgents, we had to look for a way out because the war had to come to an end at some point.
0: Today, you will find us both fighting the same fight because we both want to protect that which we did We both saw the same value and the importance for Colombia to keep believing this and keep supporting it.
2: From the Oslo Forum, welcome to The Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. Today, we bring together two former enemies who faced each other over the negotiating table as Colombia's civil war raged. The conflict over land rights and political representation between FARC rebels and the Colombian government represented one of the most violent in Latin America, lasting over five decades, leaving over 200,000 killed and millions displaced. I'm joined from Bogota by Victoria Sandino, who was a former commander and negotiator, now a senator representing the FARC's political party in Congress. She'll be speaking through an interpreter. And with us from Brussels is Sergio Jaramillo Caro former Colombian High Commissioner for Peace and Vice Minister of Defense, who is now a senior advisor at the European Institute of Peace. A very warm welcome to you, Victoria.
1: Muchas gracias y cordial Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to greet Sergio all the way where he is now. I also want to greet you and uh, your audience. So I'm, I'm here happy and willing to listen to you and to share this moment with you.
2: And welcome to you, Sergio. Thank you so much for joining us as well.
0: Thank you for the invitation, Adam. And a warm welcome to you all and especially to Victoria, whom I hadn't seen for a long time. I want to give our audience
2: a sense of your personal journeys long before you come to the negotiating table. Victoria, take us back to your teenage years. What was the moment when you decided to take up arms?
0: Well, it
1: was not when I was a teenager, so much. I was a political activist when I was young, and that lasted for many years. It was within the framework of the Unión Patriótica, the Patriotic Union. I participated in that movement, which was then exterminated at bullet point from those who didn't want peace at that moment. This is how many of our comrades were assassinated and how my family was displaced. I was displaced. That's how I I, uh, arrived in Bogota. I studied there and we were persecuted even in the capital of Colombia. This is how in 1993, I decided to join the FARC's, the guerrilla.
2: And Sergio, you came from a prominent political family and spent much of your youth studying abroad. How did that shape your worldview?
0: Well, I think the fact that I left Colombia at a young age, or relatively, I was 15, and I was for 17 years abroad in various different countries doing strange things like studying ancient greek and philosophy in different languages gives you a kind of perspective you understand that not everything is obvious and that different cultures see things differently express themselves differently i've actually thought about this a fair bit during the negotiations because even though what i studied in itself may not seem so relevant the kind of distance it gave me from certain things i think came in handy
2: let's talk about the moments when you both decided to involve yourself in peacemaking. There had been several failed attempts at negotiations in the past, but then in 2010, the decision is taken to quietly explore a new approach. And Sergio, you're involved early on in that secret phase, 2010 to 2012. Tell us about that time.
0: President Santos became president in August of 2010, and he had previously been Minister of Defence, and I had been one of his deputies. And I remember, well, telling a journalist friend, look, the war is over, but we actually don't know how to end it. President Santos, from the very beginning, was interested in doing this, and we started a secret channel, a back channel, to the FARC leadership. I managed it on the government side, and uh, Pablo Catatumbo managed it on the FARC side, to Alfonso Cano, who was then FARC commander. And then we started slowly, slowly building up and started secret talks a year and a half later in February of 2012 in Havana and did that for six months. That ended with a framework agreement. And I think the key to this was learning from other people, learning from other places, but especially learning from our own mistakes and taking very, very careful steps incrementally, quietly building up.
2: And for you, Victoria, you become more involved in 2012. There's the formal launch of talks in Oslo that year, and then the negotiations moved to Havana in Cuba. What motivated you to take part?
1: Bueno, decirle,
0: yo contar esta.
1: Well, I would like to share this uh, this part with you because I think it's significant. More or less in May or June of 2012, we were notified, and I say us because we were in the mountains and the camps, and we were moving a lot. I was in the center of the country, moving around in that territory. We were told that there was the possibility to to come to a dialogue probably abroad. It was very motivating, although we thought it was a bit strange. The previous year on November 4th of 2011, our comrade Alfonso Cano had been assassinated. He was the chief commander of the FARC EP at the moment. So when they told us about the possibility of sitting at the negotiating table, I we were skeptical. We were skeptical.
2: So you have this context where OK, perhaps there's a degree of, of skepticism of the other side, but you've built a process which uh, each side is engaging in very much. And this is taking place in Havana, where Cuban and Norwegian co-facilitators bring the two delegations together in a retreat outside the city. And just to paint a picture of the, the setting, you know, in a previous episode of this podcast, the Norwegian facilitator Dag Nilander described the informal surroundings of bicycle rides and jogging by the lake and shared meals together, which was a retreat-like atmosphere for a very serious negotiation process. Sergio, for an audience who may not know the details, what were the really important things for you and the government delegation to take away from this process?
0: Oh, that's that's a big question. But put most simply, you know, you had to do two things. You wanted to stop the war would really stop the war. So it's over. FARC transforms itself into a political party, gives up its weapons, and we move on. But second, and no less importantly, is we make sure this does not happen again, and we address the issues that kept this going for such a long time.
2: And Victoria, from your perspective, what did you and your delegation hope for? I assume that the idea that FARC should transform itself into a political party would not have been something you would contemplate without getting something in return,
1: your goals. Well, one thing was what I was hoping for and then what I thought could happen. And why do I make the difference? Well, let me tell you. When I arrived in uh, Havana, I had a small suitcase. I had the, the most necessary things, right? Because when I got to Havana, we were thinking that this could break at any point time and that we would have to go back. So you had to have your equipment ready. Like when you're in the mountain, you always have your backpack ready. That was the reality that could happen. But then there's the other question. What were we looking for? Well, I thought it was key to reach an agreement. And I felt that with my soul. It was part of the dream that Alfonso Cano shared with us. I was with Alfonso for many years. I was very close to him, or at least I feel that I was very close to him. So I felt that in a certain way I was honoring his dream. I was honoring his struggle and uh, his belief for which he even gave his life. So if we were going to reach a peace agreement, we needed guarantees. But at that moment, we were not thinking, or at least I was not thinking, of what was going to happen afterwards. The important thing was to reach an agreement. And if we couldn't, I was ready to go back.
2: You give a sense of how precarious these negotiations were, that people were ready to leave at a moment's notice if need be. But you do make progress in those talks on a number of different agenda items. But you also face setbacks. And as you're in Havana in April 2015, news breaks that there'd been an ambush by the FARC, which killed 11 soldiers. And later on, there's retaliation and over 29 FARC combatants die. Sergio, tell us a little bit more about the government's thinking and also how you felt when you heard the news of those attacks in 2015.
0: Well, the first point to mention is that President Santos did not want to make any decisions on the military side until it was clear that the process really had substance, that it was really moving forward. Because you must remember that we did these negotiations with huge political opposition from former President Uribe. So we were always being attacked for negotiating. The other thing I would point out is, again, the incremental character of the talks and the results. And here a principle operates, which is critical, which is that the more progress you make, the more irreversible the whole negotiation becomes, because the least willing each of the sides is to actually ditch that or throw it out the window. It's been actually too much work, too much effort. I'm actually a big believer on the idea of facilitation. And I don't like so much the, the idea of mediation, because I think the parties have to take responsibility. And the FARC took responsibility. Now, the problem in this case was that a FARC unit ambushed an army unit during the FARC ceasefire. And because everyone had already got used to the ceasefire, then this really had a very strong effect in Colombia and so we had to reply, the military replied, and we were in danger of spiraling out of the negotiations. But then again, we actually managed by discussing in Havana the next steps to put a stop to this, which showed again how strong and robust the talks were by then. So that's the way to go, to make sure the talks have as much substance as possible so they can actually navigate such waters.
2: I'm curious to hear more about how you managed to stop things from spiraling out of control, because Victoria, for you, in, in those attacks, you know, two members of your fellow FARC negotiating team were killed. Were you able to separate out your emotional response from you know, what, your desire to, to keep the process alive?
1: This is a very, very complex situation. Certainly, it was a very emotional moment. All deaths are painful. But at that point, just imagine, 29 of our colleagues died in a bombing. Jairo Martinez, who was a legendary guerrilla fighter who had been in Havana, died. And also our comrade Emido, who had already been in Havana, So what was the situation? Well, certainly it was a very emotional moment, but we also had the reasoning and the conviction that precisely because of those reasons, we had to keep moving forward. At that moment, Norway had a crucial role because the uh, Norwegian ambassador who was in Cuba, whenever there was tension and difficult situations like uh, this, he tried to organize a a meeting or an informal or a casual uh, meeting at the ambassador's house. And that allowed for dialogue to go on and to relieve the tension, not only in this situation, but in other situations also having to do with uh, the discussions at the table.
2: That violence that took place over the course of the war and, and even during the negotiations is a reminder of the profound human cost of this conflict. I understand that both sides agreed that victims should be placed at the heart of the process and even brought into the negotiating room at points. Sergio, can you tell us why that was so important?
0: Well, we, we said from the very beginning of the secret talks that as we were negotiating the agenda, that we need to have a point on victims on the agenda, not just a general point on human rights as had happened in other negotiations, but actually on victims in particular. The fact of victimhood is what really represented the conflict for Colombians. So we agreed to have victims come to Havana that were selected not by us, but by the UN and a a main public university in Colombia, along with the church. And then we would listen to those victims in what you must, if you want to imagine this, Imagine a kind of a proper live, big truth commission, as you might have had in South Africa, but actually it's happening in the middle of a negotiation. Both sides are listening to this. And I'll just finish by saying that one of the victims that went to this, an Afro-Colombian that had suffered terribly from a FARC attack, actually, he said, Sergio, when I walked into that very solemn, large hall, and I saw both delegations standing respectfully, welcoming us, and then sitting down and listening, I thought this is real, this is serious, this is a peace process. And I think actually it was the high point of the whole thing.
2: And Victoria, for you, what are your recollections of victims being brought into the process?
1: That was one of the most special moments of the Havana process. We established a commission and uh, we went to welcome the victims at the airport. Some people would greet me and shake my hand, and there were others who didn't. But the same was happening with uh, the government side. Some people came and greeted the uh, government officials and some others who didn't even shake their hands. Then we went on to the hearings, and listening to their own testimonies, to their own experiences, listening to the victims express the pain they had endured, and suffered during the conflict was very intense. So that made me feel a lot of respect for what these people in Colombia had lived through. And it gave me strength to move forward in this agreement.
2: In Victoria, you headed the subcommission on gender in the talks. But often there's a sense that these kind of measures in a peace process can be tokenistic, that the views of women aren't taken seriously enough. How did you work to make sure that wasn't the case in your process?
1: We would have to ask Sergio. No, I'm just joking. I have to say that that was a truly important moment. I want to share a strategy that uh, the women who were at at the negotiation used, whether we were on the government side or the women guerrilla fighters. In 2013, the government brought two plenty to the negotiating table. And I immediately addressed them. I uh, greeted them and uh, I invited them to go have a, a coffee at the house where the uh, gorilla was staying. And they were very surprised. They were not expecting that. But this allowed us to start a conversation. After that, we would always go and talk over coffee. Uh, and we would talk about things like our, our clothes, their dogs, they often asked me about my life. What was uh, the life of a guerrilla woman? So when discussions happened, I I call them the uh, machista discussions, discussions amongst the men at the table. We would start talking on a side and that allowed us to generate trust. And we started meeting with women's organizations and then the first exercise we did was to meet with the women victims that were to the hearings of men and women. That was a very important moment, and started creating an important relationship. Then we finally established the uh, subcommission on gender on July seventh of twenty fourteen, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Uh, well, we have a running argument with Victoria because she claims that she invented the subcommission, and we say we it was our idea. But... <laughs>
1: <laughs> we both invented it. It was invented by women on both sides. It,
0: it, it was quite a daring thing because they actually had authority to review the whole agreement from a gender perspective. And if there were things that they thought were not uh, in tune with that, then they would point them out and ask for changes. The crazy thing is that when you fast forward um, one or two years and we get to the referendum we had, on the peace agreement. One of the arguments of the opposition was to say that the agreement wanted to spread a gender ideology, they called it, which was something completely made up. I mean, it had nothing to do with the work that Victoria and the government had been doing, but they used the fact that that this had existed, the subcommission, to turn it against us with this bizarre thing they call the gender ideology. By the way, this turns up in other places, not just in Colombia and Brazil and even the US. In that sense, it worked against something that was a very noble enterprise.
2: Let's move now to the end of 2016 and the day that the peace agreement is signed. Sergio, it must have been a moment of high emotion, probably exhaustion too. Can you remember how it felt?
0: Yes, but let's say less so the moment of a ceremony and more the moment when you realize this is done. In fact, it's it's a longer story because you go through stages. I am not of an optimistic disposition myself, but from the beginning, I actually had this intuition that this was, was going to work. And then you see more evidence. And naturally, when you finish the actual negotiation, you're done. Everything else is kind of a, a theater piece. And if everyone's happy with the theater. I'm happy too. But for us, The main thing was getting that agreement under our belt with the FARC. And that, I think, was the moment when you said, OK, we're done.
2: And Victoria, when was the moment that it sunk in that you had achieved something special?
1: I think it was when, in 2016, we started doing peace teachings. I think we started going around camps, maybe at the end of 2015. I I don't remember precisely. Maybe Sergio remembers this better. At that time, some of our delegations from Havana went to camps to do some classes about peace, to explain people what uh, was being achieved, what was possible. So I had this feeling, everything seems to indicate that we are heading towards an agreement. There's going to be an agreement. But then I had this sensation of all of those things that I had not faced before, which was, what is going to happen with this agreement? Is it really going to happen for real? Are they going to keep their word? Did we make a mistake? How big was this mistake? When you're in war, if you make a mistake, your life is at stake. And here, there was a lot of uncertainty about what would happen after the agreement, because at that point, I thought the agreement was imminent already.
2: So some apprehension, in other words, as well as hope. But after that moment of hope, there was also disappointment because within weeks, there's a referendum and the Colombian public narrowly rejects the deal. Victoria, tell us about that moment when you saw the results come in.
1: Look, that was an extremely painful moment. They used falsehood. For example, the achievement that we, as women, had had of the the gender perspective, it was not an agreement or a pact between the negotiating parts, but that it had involved directly women organizations in Colombia. So I was very hurt by that. I thought it had been a mistake on behalf of the government. That referendum had been a mistake. And on top of that, there had been no counter-narrative to the campaign. I was so affected that I was sick, at that point, um, I was so sick that I had to go to the doctor the next day. But I think it was the emotional charge having to do with the lie of, of the gender perspective during the negotiation.
2: And Sergio, what was going on through your head that day?
0: Ooh, that was, um, yes, that was, that was something. Although I have to say, I'm, I'm actually, I actually felt more scared about a year later than I did at the moment. Because at that moment, I mean, we've gone through so many problems and so many crises that you think, okay, well, this is a big one, but you know, you need to get on it and see what, how you're going to get out of it. And then later on, as I've reflected on that moment and everything that could have happened, I thought, my God, really, we could have lost absolutely everything if we had played our cards badly. It worked well, and it worked well because there was such disposition on both sides, especially the FARC because the next day we flew to Havana with Humberto de la Calle to tell the FARC, look, we lost, that's democracy. And these guys want changes, just something that's important. They said, oh, no, we agree with what you're doing, but we want changes. So when we lost, we said, okay, you've won. You've won by very little because they won by 0.3 of a percent. 0.3 of a percent out of 13.5 million votes, they got about 60,000 votes difference. But you won. So what is it you want to change? And then we had to go to the FARC and say, look, We have no choice. We have to make some changes. For me, that was the kind of the high point of the FARC's management and behaviour in the peace process, because they realised this is serious and okay. they said, okay, we're ready. We're ready to change some things. Even though they were going to be painful, they did. And we saved the peace process.
1: I mean,
2: it says something about the commitment to the process that the FARC had, that the government had, that you work through those difficulties and eventually come up with a revised agreement that's approved in the Congress. Let's talk about where things stand today. You have a president who campaigned against the peace agreement, which has faced its fair share of challenges in implementation. Since 2016, over 250 former FARC combatants have been killed, some reportedly in reintegration camps run by the government. The government blames dissident groups and drug gangs. I want to end with some analysis of where this leaves the painstaking work that you both did. Sergio, you first of all, do you find it dispiriting that your compatriots elected a president who stood so vehemently against your work?
0: I frankly don't like our current government. It's not—it's not a very good government. It's not a very competent government, as has happened in so many places. But he didn't really get elected because of the peace process. That was the original political base they built. That was why they opposed the agreements. And some things have been have been preserved. I think the reintegration process of the FARC has gone well, in good measure thanks to the FARC's own will and insistence. But I think the government has done that bit well. The whole transitional justice machinery that it was set up is working. So I actually remain optimistic, and it's actually, for me, a sign of the resilience or proof of the resilience of the agreement itself. It has actually withstood a government that's so unsympathetic to the peace process.
2: And Victoria, of the 13,000 FARC fighters who disarmed following the agreement, thousands have since rearmed. Is that a measure that they've lost faith in the process?
0: There is
1: a very painful thing going on. There were more than 13,500... Combatants, according to the first mission of the UN, 13,589 ex combatants who transitioned to peace, who signed the agreement, and who laid down our weapons. But in terms of reincorporation, only 86 projects have been approved. Out of these 86 productive projects, only 61 of them have received resources. And this benefits only. 3,300 ex combatants. But the problem is that people don't have guarantees, for example, of security of life or of land. So, this is a very serious problem, especially in areas of conflict, because the FARC left many of these areas of conflict when they laid down weapons but then they were not occupied by the colombian government instead it was occupied by other groups that are in the fringes of the law some of them are related to drug gangs some others are paramilitaries some others are unidentified and the worst thing is that there is no defined action on behalf of the state so what's happening in terms of peace implementation is very serious said he was saying he doesn't like the government because they are not very competent well in addition to the, the to their incompetence they have no political will or commitment with peace in colombia i
2: can sense the frustration and and worry uh, in your voice victoria when you describe that we talked earlier about victims of the conflict and linked to that are the issues of justice and accountability which is inevitably one of the most Sensitive, the agreement resulted in the special jurisdiction for peace, the YEP, which would look at violations committed by both sides, and and this is quite remarkable, uh, given that impunity is often the norm in a peace process. And just very recently, in January this year, the YEP indicted seven ex-FARC commanders for their role in kidnapping. Victoria, I know that this is a difficult issue for you and your colleagues. How hard has it been for those who you served alongside to admit to wrongdoing?
0: I
1: have to say that this is a very complicated situation. When we were in Havana, experts worked together to to design justice, redress and no repetition. And we have supported this system all this time so that it can bear fruit so that it acts in line with the spirit of this agreement. But I think that the YEP has made a mistake. They have made a mistake in the way they have issued this order that you're referring to, this this indictment, because they are not recognizing the political crime. The FARC-EP was a political and military organization. It was a revolutionary organization. They were rebels, armed rebels. And then we, we took this step There were some very painful situations. There were victims, but not only by the FARC, but they were victims of the entire framework of the conflict. So I think this order by the YEP basically makes the political crime to be lost. And it is as if the peoples did not have the right to rebel and there is no repairing and redressing justice instead we see the justice of the enemy, meaning those who were defeated and the FARCs were not defeated. They signed a peace agreement.
2: Sergio, we heard just now how controversial and difficult these issues are. What do you make of this, having been instrumental in seeing this uh, institution created uh, through the negotiations? And and what do you think in the future, when the YEP starts to look at what the Colombian military has done, how they will react to accusations of wrongdoing on their part?
0: Well, the first thing to say is that this is really a first. This had never been done anywhere in any negotiation, that a guerrilla force agrees with the government that there'll be a system of justice, and that it agrees that it's ready to stand before a tribunal and be uh, handed out a sentence. So obviously, it's emotional, it's tough. But the rule here was that it's for victims of all sides. So today, all the lights are on on the farc because that was the first indictment that's come out but tomorrow is going to be on state agents for also other kinds of horrific crimes committed during the war uh, and that was the basis of the whole thing when we had these really tough negotiations with the farc on the issue of justice and let me say that people who say that peace and justice are you know are just one and the same thing and so forth it's You know, it's nice to say, but that's frankly academic. It's extremely difficult to do it in practice, extremely difficult to do it in practice, because you're actually doing two things that are contradictory. You're looking back and you're looking forward. You are trying to look at the past to bring accountability, but you're also trying to build a vision of the future and have people move into that future. Um, So it's a very, very, very fine line. It's a very narrow bridge. But I think that this principle that the FARC agreed to, which was, We will agree to the system if it's a system for all victims from all sides. It's what's going to keep it afloat and everyone's going to realize that this is actually best for everyone and obviously best for the victims.
2: I'm curious how uh, the impressions you have of each other have changed over time. Victoria, I'm curious whether you think you know him a little better now.
1: Yes, I think so. We have spent so much time together at the negotiations. That, yeah, I just think that Sergio is very cachaco. That is a colloquial adjective, and it means people who are not from the coast, but from the from the interior of the country. But he's also a little bit European. He already said it. He's been, he lived abroad for a long time. And I am Caribbean. I'm from the Caribbean coast. I follow protocol less, let's say. So at the beginning, there wasn't a whole lot of dialogue. But then during the last stage... Like uh, Sergio said, after the referendum, we worked for more than two weeks, maybe three weeks. We were working side by side, day and night. Maybe we stopped at one, two or three in the morning and went back to work at five in the morning, seven in the morning to keep reviewing and reviewing what became the agreement so that we could move forward to reach the uh, definitive agreement that was uh, signed in 2016. So we were very stressed out we had to work point by point and look at all the phrasing. We were sitting in the same house, in the same office, but that allowed us to talk to each other more. I don't know if uh, Sergio will allow me to to say this anecdote, but there was a detail that was very important to me in one of those meetings at the Norwegian embassy. So I had previously met uh, Sergio's wife because for whatever reason, she she had accompanied him sometimes. But at that time, we were at the Norwegian ambassador's home, and Sergio's wife is a wonderful woman. She is down to earth. She's very charming, and we were talking about very simple things, trivial things. She likes to have piglets as pets, and I love piglets as well. In fact, I had a piglet as a pet, and uh, when we when we talked about that, it changed our perspective because I thought, well, if this if this man is with this. Lovely woman. Well, he must not be that bad after all.
0: (laughs) Yes, you see, you're you're, you're always saved by your wife. And
1: and,
2: and for you, Sergio, you know, you've been in these talks from the very start. Like, how do you think you've changed? I mean, not intellectually in terms of negotiating strategy, but more at a personal level, having committed so many years of your life to this work?
0: Well, it's one thing to think intellectually that that you try to put yourself in the shoes of the other person and it's another thing to actually live through that that was a kind of big lesson when there's talk about peace and there was talk about justice i think people lose sight of the courage actually that both sides but especially those who are actually going to change their lives and give up their weapons have to have because they're going to put yourselves in your trust and they're going to try a different future that requires a lot of courage. And that requires something that I actually think is lost, which is a a belief in the power of transformation. And that is why today you will find us both fighting the same fight because we both want to protect that which we did, which we originally were doing for very different reasons. But then in the end, we both saw the same value in and the importance for Colombia to keep believing this and keep supporting it. And there there are many, many difficulties, but I actually remain optimistic.
2: And Victoria, Sergio just now talked about the active courage that it takes to transform yourself. Do you feel like you have the same fire in your belly as when you were a young activist and that you're simply continuing that same struggle, but now in Congress in a political system. I think
1: that I've matured. I've lived many years, but I've also gained vision and experience. I must recognize that when I was a young woman, I certainly was very passionate about the uh, revolutionary struggle and about change. When I decided to join the guerrilla, that was a very transcendental decision that marked a before and after in my life. It gave me a completely different context. 24 years in insurgents gave me the conviction that we had to look for a way out and that we had to go back because the war had to come to an end at some point. We still have the absolute conviction that peace is the way. Peace with social justice. Peace is not only silencing weapons. Peace is also, and more than anything, the transformation that allow us not to go back to war. I still have this conviction. I still have this commitment and that uh, decision that I will not give up and that there is no other way out than to work for peace. That's the only one I will have until the end of my days.
2: Well, on that note, I'd like to bring this discussion to a close. Thank you so much to both of you. Victoria, you've been a wonderful guest. I'm so grateful that you shared your incredible life story and experience with
1: us. Muchas gracias a ustedes, por supuesto, también. Thanks to you, certainly. It was a pleasure to say hello to Sergio and to share this space. Please say hello to your wife, certainly, and uh, hello to everyone.
2: And- Sergio, thank you so much for being so generous, sharing your time and expertise. And thank your wife as well from all of us.
0: Well, no, primero, I'll say in Spanish, muchas gracias, Victoria, por esas palabras tan amables, para Ana María, que se pondrá muy, muy, muy feliz. No, and thank you for this, because as I mentioned, Adam, yes, every conflict is different. And yes, the first thing you need to do is understand actually what makes your particular conflict tick. But there are things you can learn from others uh, if you have the humility. We had it. We tried to learn from other places. We had to learn from our own mistakes. And whatever we can humbly offer to others, Victoria, the others, myself, were there to help.
2: Thank you. That was Sergio Jaramillo Caro and Victoria Sandino in the Mediator Studio. To get new episodes as soon as they're released, make sure you subscribe. And if you enjoyed hearing about the process in Colombia, then you might also like to hear my interview with Dagny Landa, the Norwegian facilitator of the talks, who we had on during our first season. The Mediator Studio team loves hearing your feedback and suggestions. If you have a moment, please fill out our very short survey, which you can find in the show notes and on our website. You can also leave us a review or get in touch with me on Twitter at AdamTalksPeace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchhold and the show is produced by Christopher Gunness. Neither peacemaking nor podcasts happen without lots of work behind the scenes. My thanks go to our whole production team in Geneva, Evie Krasner, Rosie Fowler, and Giles Pitts, and in Oslo, Elizabeth Schlattum, Ellen Fadnes, and David Jordan. Join us next time in the Mediator Studio, but until then, that's all from me, Adam Cooper. Thank you
0: for listening.